Hello and welcome to this edition of Conversations from the ANF Network. In this episode, I speak to Irina. She is a foster carer and an adoptive parent and lives in Australia. Irina shares her experience of becoming a foster carer, then moving to Singapore where she also fostered and adopted her daughter with her husband. They now live back in Australia where they have continued to foster and have adopted a son. In this conversation, Irina also reflects on the challenges faced by the fostering and adoption system in Australia and her broader views on the issues. As always, if you have experience of adoption, fostering or special guardianship from any perspective, personal or professional, and would like to share that on the podcast, please get in touch through the Facebook page, the app formerly known as Twitter, or you can email us at aandfpodcast at gmail.com. My name is Irina Castellano. If you hear an accent, it's because I am German. But I've lived abroad for quite a few years. And once I met my husband, I actually came out here to Australia. So I'm now living in Australia. But um, yeah, I've been in different countries before that because my father was an engineer. And so we moved every few years. And that has made me very aware of, you know, the privileged lifestyle I had as a child. And that, yeah, not everybody gets to live the way I did and to fly around the world and yeah at the very young age I want wanted to do fostering and adoption after reading a book and that's why I'm here today because I love the fact that that is a bit of your life as well and mm-hmm. yeah I would love to talk about that excellent so tell me about this book what inspired this little girl yeah I was 15 years old and living in America and I read this book a child called it by Dave Pelsa oh, yeah. and that was the first time I've ever heard about I mean I had heard about child abuse but I had never heard of it uh, being from the biological family I don't know I just you know that that happens to single out a child so this is a child that was singled out among his siblings by his biological mother and then made to sleep in the cellar in in the garage actually on the concrete floor with no pillow and blanket and that just so stuck with me that I could not comprehend that and then the second book talks about his experience in foster care. And that was the first time I had ever heard about fostering. And I decided then and there that I wanted to have my own kids and also maybe one day adopt and foster and create, yeah, create a place where kids are safe. So obviously, I mean, we were chatting just very briefly before we started recording and you were talking about um foster care and the challenges of how and why people come to foster care so um you found yourself in australia uh with your husband um and so tell me what is the process of becoming a foster care in in australia yeah well actually i came out here because obviously he's australian but then uh, it was a very strange scenario that i was on a spouse visa and because of my visa i couldn't work (laughs) Sorry. And um, I said, oh, OK, so I, I'm not allowed to work. My husband uh, traveled 22, uh, 200 year, days a year. So he was actually abroad quite a bit. And I was literally, you know, thinking, what am I going to do with my time now? No, nobody here except for his immediate family. And I started to look through local papers and I saw the ads. Do you want to become a carer? And I thought, wow, this is what I always wanted to do. So I called him while he was overseas and I said, hey, this is what I always wanted to do. Just kind of forgot to mention it (laughs) before getting married. And uh, he was like, oh, but, you know, I thought we try for our own kids. And I said, yeah, but, you know, in the meantime, 
we should maybe foster. But because we had just married, actually most agencies wouldn't take you so long, uh, so early on. And yeah, so I called around and then there was one agency which said even at that time, 23 years ago, that they were rather desperate and that they will make an exception because, you know, we were already both in our mid-30s. And then we started the process. And I guess it's probably the same in England that, you know, besides uh, working with children checks and a police check, that you also have to go through a two-day workshop and then you have an assessor coming to the house and they then talk to you about your past and how yeah. you would like to, you know, educate and raise children. And yeah, it's quite detailed. And if you've been so shortly married as I was with my husband, you find out a lot about each other that, you know, you would have never really covered <laughs> in such a short period of time. So I thought it was actually quite enlightening <laughs> to hear how he was disciplined as a child and yeah, all all the things that happened in his life in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm slightly intrigued because I work as a social worker assessing foster carers. And I think one of the things I would have thought was, well, what did you come with experience of caring for children or working with children prior to that? Well, actually, just as a babysitter and as a nanny, I worked for two years yeah, as an au pair girl. I wasn't a qualified nanny, but it was, yeah, mm-hmm. I had babysat from the age of 12. And then for two years, I was actually in France working as a, an au pair girl, as they call it. But my background is actually in aviation, so it was something totally different. Yeah. So so what sort of, I mean, in the UK, again, you, you sort of, you're becoming approved as a foster carer or reg, you know, registered. Um, you mm-hmm. Normally, people are quite specific about what sort of children they would, they feel able to care for and the, the whoever like the agency is, they will also say, well, actually, we think this is the type of child that would fit best with you and your experience and circumstances. So again, were you, did you have to specify, given that your experience is quite limited, isn't it? Or was? Then again, I must say, I was very comfortable with babies, toddlers, anything, you know, so, and since my husband, like I said, traveled a lot, it was pretty much me on my own. (laughs) Yeah. And so I was very flexible. I said, look, whatever age, anything you know and yeah so I got placed actually my first one was a little baby boy and then yeah I had all ages pretty much till you know 13 and 15 now so so what was that experience of having children start with then because that's again that's it's it's all well and good in theory doing it but then all of a sudden children arrive and it's 24 7 isn't it yeah but I must admit that the because most of them were quite young babies and toddlers at the at that time initially i was oh i was very comfortable and i just loved it i just loved the whole thing of looking after these little ones and because i didn't you know was on my own a lot so it didn't matter if i woke up at night and you know i had nobody else to worry about and nobody else in the household per se so yeah it was i loved it i loved it from the beginning so been really I, I know that you know not all cases are the same and I must say that probably later on we had so we we started in Australia then my husband got posted to China which okay was a year of a break because there's no fostering there and then from there we moved to Singapore and we fostered Singaporean babies there and also adopted our first child from Singapore we were actually it seems the first Caucasian or even the first Australian couple to adopt there in Singapore 
And you made that sound really easy. Um, you made it sound like, oh, we just moved to Singapore and we became foster carers. Um, what, what was the process there? Because I've, I've got, I have no idea. What is it a similar sort well, of process? Well, to be honest, I didn't, I didn't even know that you could foster as a Caucasian or as a, you know, resident, not as a Singaporean passport holder. So for me, that was really surprising. But when I, when we, we moved there and we quite early on, I found out that because I met a lady by coincidence, um, who was married to an Australian and she was Singaporean and they were fostering. And because we started to talk about uh, fostering, how we did it in Australia. And she said, oh, yeah, we are foster carers. So that was like, uh, you know, I said, wow, OK, then let's see if we can get uh, approved as both of us not being Singaporean. And they when they heard that we were already approved in, in Australia, they knew that it was quite advanced in Australia in terms of, you know, the training and the openness about everything and yeah, it's not even as known and as accepted in Singapore itself. And then when it came to this little girl that was needing a home and when we put our hand up and we said, yeah, OK, we're, we would be happy to adopt her. Then it was Singapore, yeah, Singapore being super efficient <laughs> and uh, the adoption actually was done very quickly. She came to I got to meet her at two and a half months. Uh, our daughter and then at five months we had the first one night sleepover <laughs> which you wonder what that is going to do but anyway we did whatever they asked us to do and then within another six months she was already finished with all the paperwork and adopted it was um, incredibly efficient so i mean that's uh, fostering is you know is um it's not adoption it's you know they're, they're mm -hmm. not as much as they're often talked of in the same kind of uh, conversation, they're not. They're not the same. And was no, there and they shouldn't be. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel very strongly about kids being in foster care, giving birth families a break, and you know, a success story is when the child is reunited to birth family. That's the way it should be. That's where the kids belong. But let's just face it: not all children can be reunited with birth family. And then it is great that even here in Australia now, and this is also why I would like to make it more known that, yeah, it has become more streamlined. And especially, for example, when we came back from Singapore, when we started to foster here again, I was actually quite annoyed initially because every time we would have a child, and at that time also we had a lot of babies, a lot of toddlers. Every time I met somebody, they said, oh, yeah, yeah, you're going to adopt this one. And I was like, no, I'm fostering. My aim is to reunite this child with the birth family. And they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's all, oh, it's my coming. And, and now it has become more streamlined in the sense that you can hear in Australia now, or at least in New South Wales, not in all states and territories, you can actually become an authorized foster carer at the same time as an approved adoptive parent. So that when children are placed with you, that then, you know, it could be the first child, it can be the tenth child. But if there is a child that actually cannot be reunited with birth family, that you are already pre-approved. And then if that child comes up for adoption, then yes, that will be fast-tracked. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is actually a great idea. I don't want people to go into fostering to create their families per se. But if people are open and they say, okay, you know, we want to help these kids. And if one cannot be reunited, then yes, we would even consider adoption. And that, I think, is brilliant. Yes. Yeah, so, there's, yeah, I mean, there's, there's uh, connected. 
uh, there's lots to unpick there. I want to kind of kind of unpick some of that. So, but I want if I could take you back to Singapore because I, I am sort of um, I think in in the UK especially that there's a there's concerns in term or not concerns or it's become very much un, very unusual for people to adopt from other countries. And obviously, you being um, you being German and Australian as a couple, um, going into Singapore and taking a Singaporean. I'm not sure what the thing this thing. Well, go with Singaporean that. Singaporean baby, yeah. Singaporean uh-huh. baby. Oh, coming out in a cold sweat. Um, there. Um, <laughs> um, thinking that that's a that's a much bigger step than kind of a conventional adoption of a child that reflects your ethnicity, your nationality, your culture. And was there any sort of questions about that? And how common is um, adoption in Singapore? Well, it's it's not common at all. And to be honest also in uh, i'm very much for open adoptions so here in australia and you know just to in a nutshell we also adopted a child from out of home out of home care here in australia Uh, in australia and in so many other countries now it's an open adoption so which means that you will always have a, a chance or an opportunity you know if the birth family is interested to actually have you know, a possibility for for you to stay in touch with birth family and to provide contact visits and all of that. In Singapore, it is different because adoptions are closed. So you're not supposed to have any contact or anything like that, which is really a shame because I'm totally for open adoption. I do think that if you can provide a connection to the culture and give the child a bit more of a possibility to have more information so to help with their own identity i think it's super important so in Aust- in singapore normally the kids would also be you know adopted out to singaporean families yeah. having said that in singapore as you may or may not know it's you know very much a family is either chinese background malay background or indian background that's singapore that's you know the yeah the beautiful mix in Singapore. But if you have a child that is mixed race, then they do struggle to find families. And because our daughter is mixed race, they would have not found a Singaporean family easily. Yeah. And therefore, they I mean, we were surprised as well. But when we heard that it is possible and it is supported, then we thought, well, gee, I mean, we are more than happy. And, you know, for, for us, it, it didn't make a difference. Having said that, um, yeah, I do think that it helps a child if it is the same ethnicity. Now, in hindsight, I do believe that, yeah, it, you know, but then again, if you have children that need a home for us, it did not matter what she looked like, where she was from. It was for us a child that needed a home. Yeah, because I'm not, again, I don't know anything about the Singapore system, but is there, are there do they run orphanages there? Do children sort of grow up in that system through through to adulthood if they can't be found homes yeah they would be they, they do have orphanages and they, they have children homes yeah so, and it's interesting that because i've i find myself often in this sort of pragmatic position that the, i'm not happy with lots of things but i can't see the alternative i can't see a better alternative and that sounds a bit like is that would that be a fair of characterization of your position? Oh, look, I don't think I've seen a system that works perfectly in any country. (laughs) I think all the systems have flaws, but it doesn't mean that I don't want to help and I don't want to, you know, do what I can for these kids to have 
a safe home because at the end of the day, they didn't ask for any of this. So kids are put yeah. into a position that, you know, they don't really get a choice. And if we can help a child any which way to make it easier and for them not to even know much about the system, especially if they are younger, the better it is. Because these yeah. kids should both be kids and should have a childhood that they can play and not have to have responsibilities that are beyond their age or anything like that, you know, to deal with anything that is not really part of a childhood where you would say a child can be a child. Yeah. Yeah, it is. You, I think often adoptive parents are characterized as being hugely enthusiastic about adoption, but often it is that sense of give me an alternative and we'll, we'll do that. But actually this is, this is the best we've got in this situation. Oh, look, um, I think with all these researches and, and years of doing the fostering, I think we all know that kids need permanency. And what has happened in the past that kids, you know, hop in the system and get moved around 20 times, 25 times by the age of 18, that's just shocking. Because every mm -hmm. time you move a child, that is extra trauma added to it. Because especially if kids are younger, you know, sometimes... There's also, for example, one thing that I would love to change in in any system all over the world because I know it's not supported enough and the resources are not there and all the other things. But, for example, I really, really struggle with the child that has been in our care that is maybe really young, let's say two or three, and then, you know, you get the phone call and, yes, they're moving either back to birth family or they're moving on to another placement for whatever reason. and you know, even if you would sit down with that child at that age, they don't really understand what you're saying. You're now telling them that they're going somewhere else. But when you're packing up and you're, you know, putting the bag in the boot, it's a bit more for the child as if to say, okay, I'm going to contact visit, I'm going to another contact, and then I'll be back. And the mm. children don't even fully understand what goes on. So here we are waving, you know, trying to not be so emotional, the child is leaving or whatever else it might be. But the kid doesn't really fully understand what goes on. And then off it goes. And so many times I have, you know, asked the caseworker at that time, say, look, can we just see the kid one more time over Zoom or any which way to just show the child that, hey, we, we are happy that, you know, he is there, that we were not upset with him leaving or, you know, any of that. And it's always cut off and not really yeah. supported. And that is, for example, a big one, which I struggle with, because I think not just for my children also, who are such a big part of the fostering, when we have a child in our care, for them to see, hey, the, the kid is okay, or, you know, if he still smiles, so he must be okay, or whatever it might be, just for them, for a sense of closure, but also for the child itself to actually see, hey, you know, yes, they are now there, but ah, look, we're smiling, we're waving, and we're happy to see the child. And mm. I think that is so important and totally not supported really with anybody in any system that I've heard of. And that would I would love to change that, for example. Well, that's interesting. Um, uh, I could give you the name of some English foster carers who are uh, an organisation called Foster Wiki, um, and they right. are they've just started a campaign. Mm -hmm. explicitly about that about how do we maintain this thread for children of relationships and yes circumstances mean that sometimes children have to move but why do we have to sever um because that's not life that's not how life works we 
and it's and the, the actual the damage of that potentially for children is is catastrophic at such a vulnerable age. Yeah, I've seen those posts and I I couldn't agree more. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Because as much as you know, when a child comes to you, they say, "All right," and you know, this child will have contact with, let's say, birth mom or birth dad or grandma, and yes, there's this important family member and this one. So that is okay to then support it. But if the child has lived with us for six months, a year, whatever it may be, and then it's not supported, it doesn't make much sense because we would also then be an important person for that child in their lives. And then it should also be supported. Yeah. But that is, again, another story. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there's so many threads to this. And um, I'm going to take you back to Singapore because um, I've got another question. And um, for you as a family, then you've you've. You sort of you mentioned that your plan would be, oh well, well, we'll have children, and then it became, well, we'll foster, and then when the time's right, we'll have children, and then all of a sudden you have you adopt, so you have become a parent then, and you come back to Australia. So already that plan has totally gone wrong. Well, it hasn't gone wrong, but it's not. It's sort of fostering has taken you a direction that you did not expect. Look, I, I always wanted to do all three have my own kids foster and adopt, but I never really knew in which order. And I think it it was meant to be exactly that way. I mean, you know, we had tried to fall pregnant. It wasn't happening so much. Also, you know, two people need to be in the same country, (laughs) which was difficult. And then uh, we we had even tried IVF before before leaving Sydney. And then when we continued in Singapore, we, you know, we adopted our daughter then we did have a baby with IVF and so our son was born in Singapore as well but we also had a miscarriage we also had a stillborn and then when we came back to Sydney we continued fostering and you know we were so grateful to have these two children and we just meant to foster but then when one child was placed with us and she also came to us at five months and, uh, you know, just before turning three, two, three, three-ish, uh, it was decided that she cannot be reunited. And then, yeah, we were so so happy to also adopt her. So on her fifth birthday, she was adopted as well. So that's quite a family and that's quite a journey as well for you because I'm conscious you sort of, you skipped over your own experiences, you know, of, of you know, of miscarriage and stillbirth, which are big, big things in a, in a, for, for any family and for a woman. So it sounds like by the time you, you know, within five years, you've got this little group of children, you've got three children and, um, it's, it's, it's a really peculiar kind of makeup of families as well. Um, so you're now, you know, that's maybe what's that 15, 20 years ago now. Um, so you've continued to foster since then. Has your family grown? Yeah, we are currently actually still fostering, not as much, because also, for example, our our first adopted daughter, she has finished school last year and she's now at university, which is also very cute that when, when I asked, well, how come you want to be a teacher? Because it was a bit all of a sudden. She was like, well, mom, because I want to help those kids that need help and I want to identify those kids at school, you know, and I mm. want to support them. And so she is now becoming a primary school teacher. And our biological son is now actually this week, tomorrow, this is his last day to do his HSC. 
So we have slowed it down just so that, you know, it is, let's say, a calm household that we don't have anybody, you know, maybe waking up in the middle of the night or anything like that. But we still foster. We, we also have two kids that come for respite every, you know, every two months. They come for respite for the weekend. And this is another thing that I would just like to put out there because a lot of people don't know that you can foster even, you know, just a weekend here and there. If you become a respite carer, you can say, yeah, we're happy to foster one weekend a month. And we are desperate here in Australia. We are desperate for respite yeah. carers because there's a lot of families that, you know, need a, need a break in the sense, not just because, you know, because of the kids' behaviors or whatever, but it is also because um, maybe, you know, somebody needs to go into hospital for an operation. We have a lot of single parents uh, fostering as well. So it's not that, you know, there's always couples or anything like that. And some, some just need a helping hand during, you know, a certain period, or they need to look after their elderly parent for a certain period of time or, uh, you know, anything like that, as you know. So, and yes, it could also be that because uh, the kids have maybe more complex needs that it would be lovely to have one weekend where they can maybe just reconnect as a couple or as a family with their own biological kids. So even those, you know, times are really, really important for carers to make sure that these placements can continue and that everybody is recharging their batteries uh, to really keep going. And yeah, so respite would be great. Plus, you know, there's emergency care when you are flexible and you get the phone call in the middle of the night and then there's short-term care or permanent care. So there's all different types of care, which again, a lot of people don't know. You mentioned that there's a desperate need and we're seeing a similar sort of, uh, people are sort of saying it's a crisis that we've reached a point where we're not, there's just not enough foster carers. People are not coming through. And is that a comp, is that comparable with, Australia in terms of the number of people coming forwards. Yeah, and this is also why I've really become so much more engaged in, you know, trying to, it's really been in the last two years in particular that I thought, oh my gosh, you know, here in Australia now, we, I mean, we have, I don't think you'll ever have a time where, gee, we remove a child and boom, we have 10 carers lined up and, oh, let's pick and choose which one we're going to take. I don't yeah. think this will ever happen, not in our lifetime. <laughs> but it has hardly ever been as bad as it is right now because before, if we had children under the age of five, we would always find carers because, you know, everybody tends to think, oh, yeah. it's so much easier, which doesn't need to be. But, yeah, you know, uh, but in the last two years in particular, it has become a whole lot different here in Australia. We are now so desperate for carers that, you know, you get the phone call uh, and if they don't have when they don't find somebody and because there are no orphanages here in Australia, uh, these kids get put up in motel rooms. Now we know that consistency and permanency is so important for these children and you've just removed them from everything they've ever known. And even if it wasn't a safe house, it was still their home and still familiar to them. Now you're moving them into a motel room. I mean, when I first told my kids about this, they were like, oh, a hotel, five stars with a pool. And I was like, no, 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 they're in a motel, okay? And they yeah. have shift workers. And, you know, even if the shift workers have the best, best of intentions, they're normally casuals or they're youth workers, uh, you know, or case workers that, yeah, did not sign up to be doing, you know, babysitting roles in motel rooms. So you have people who do this in eight-hour shifts, so which means that people are changing quite a bit. 
which is not good for anybody, but especially not good for the kids. And then, um, you know, you don't bring any, <laughs> I mean, it's not a home where you have, you know, a garden or you have uh, yeah. family meal times or toys. So even if they have a few toys, I mean, you know, what do you do with it's raining outside and now you have, you know, a set of three siblings in a motel room. I mean, it's not ideal by any means, besides the fact, of course, yeah. also that it costs a hell of a lot of money here in Australia. They've now just declared that it costs $1 million to keep one child in a motel room for one year. And gee, what what trauma are you putting on this kid in a motel room for one year? Yeah, like you say, it's the worst of all options, isn't it? Mm. Because it's you, you've got that turnover of individuals, workforce, which is may be consistent, may not be. And then you've got a, a home that is not, per, there's no sense of permanence about it because it's not a home, is it? Hotel rooms are lovely for a weekend away, but would not want to live in one. Um, and that seems quite, um, I mean, that's stark. We we have a similar problem, I think, in terms of older teenage children being put in sort of unregulated accommodation, but not certainly not younger children at all, or not that I know of. Um, and look, I think you know that in residential care, you really shouldn't have any kids under the age of 12. Mm -hmm. And because, I mean, you know, there's a lot going on in residential care that's not for kids uh, to to see or know about at the under, you know, under the age of 12. And unfortunately, we even have that, that we now have young kids put into residential care. And I think also the COVID crisis has definitely, you know, made it worse because if housing here in Australia has become incredibly expensive. So a lot of people are struggling not only with increase in rents. So if they do have a spare bedroom, I would think that a lot of people take in other people to actually rent that room or they would even make it a home office. So now a lot of people don't have spare rooms, you know, so yeah. we really have the issue that there aren't many households which could say, oh, yeah, gee, you know, I have one, two bedrooms here. Let's fill it. So that that is another big issue since since COVID, anybody with a spare bedroom has converted it to a home office. Yeah, I was going to ask, and it's sort of a really practical question. I thought, well, how would foster care is paid in the UK? In the UK, there's no set fee. It's depending on which part of the country, which which agency you work for. You would normally get a so some agencies run it as a you would get a, an amount of money to look after the child, which is for cl food, clothing, etc. And then you would get maybe a reward element. But what is the financial remuneration in, in Australia? I don't know if I want to give numbers because also it depends a bit on the state and on yeah. the territory. And it is paid fortnightly. It's a tax-free allowance. And that's supposed to cover, yeah, food and clothing and so on. And look, if you ever think about doing that for the money. I think the hourly rate would be incredibly low. We've actually yeah. just had a lot of posts here that, you know, I mean, a lot of people during COVID decided to get dogs. And now after COVID, a lot of these dogs are quite anxious because, you know, the owners are suddenly <laughs> away and no longer Back in the house. Why, yeah, but why I'm saying this now is that a lot of people pay, you know, yeah, 50 80, 100, $120 per day to have doggy daycare. And that is definitely not what we are being paid with these children in our care. So yeah. that is also quite shocking <laughs> because when you think about that now, you know, if, if you put a dog in a kennel for two weeks here, you pay a whole lot more than what foster carers get on a two week fortnightly basis. So yeah. 
it's not for the money. That's definitely not. Uh, it is to provide a safe home for these kids and to make sure that no further abuse happens. Unfortunately, even there, you know, you have foul apples in every system, uh, which then, of course, spoil the reputation of foster care. But these kids deserve a roof over their head. They deserve regular food. They deserve, uh, you know, a household where they can be who they are supposed to be at that mm. age. And, you know... Yeah, it's an emotive issue, money, and because I, th especially if you speak to people who are not involved, they they have quite strong opinions about whether foster carers should be paid. And my view is that foster carers should <laughs> never should should never be out of pocket. They should never it should never yeah. cost people to foster care. Um, but why shouldn't we pay them? You know, why shouldn't we pay them? Yeah, if they're doing you know, they're doing an amazing cannot... job. <laughs> yeah, and I have a friend of mine, for example, she had her own practice. Uh, she then opened up her home to three kids. Uh, you know, further down the track, all all three kids have quite quite a few behavioral issues, and they also need more support in terms of speech therapy and physio and all of that. So she, you know, closed down her practice to concentrate on being a full time mom at home to look after these three kids. So we don't we don't talk about these cases either because. Uh, this lady now is not getting superannuation put into her account for the future. This lady does not have her, her normal income and mm. any allowance that you give when you, I mean, we had babies, you know, that needed morphine during the night because they were, you know, they were subjected to drug use in utero. So, I mean, I, I got up every six hours for these kids around the clock. I mean, I don't know what kind of money you can put on this, you know, so these kids need all our attention and support. And if we find people that that do that and open up their home and, you know, go through all the processes, the paperwork, all the other things that come with it, that you have to do all the contact visits, of course, that you have to take them to medical appointments and yeah. support their learning needs and all of that. It, I mean, anybody who talks about fostering, not you know, being something that should not even be, paid enough so that hey you're not out of pocket and you know what there are so many foster carers also that take in disabled kids that need you know 24 hour care that then yes they need a bigger car to put the wheelchair in and you know what good on them let them get the bigger car yes let there be some funding for that i mean if people are willing to change their whole life to look after people that need a home I mean, gee, I don't think you could put a price really on it. You know, nobody is in yeah. this to make money. We are in this on a 24-hour basis to help these children. We get attached to these kids. Uh, they move on. Yes, we take the next kid in. If anybody thinks that that is emotionally easy or uh, physically easy <laughs> or, you know, anything at all, that is definitely not the case. So, uh, yeah. yeah, for me... You cannot put a price on this. We're trying to change these kids' future. We're trying to support them. We're trying to show them that they are worthy of our love, our attention. I mean, really, you know, there is no price yeah. for that. <laughs> Can I, um, I think we probably, I think foster carers, uh, we sort of are on the same page with that. Um, uh, I, I was going to ask you about adoption in Australia because I am not that familiar, but what I do see and what I do read and listening to people, some people, is terms that adoptions had quite a an interesting few years, really, where adoption has had a very difficult past, a very, you know, 
problematic past. Maybe that's a good way of putting it in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, how the the Aboriginal community is being treated and how some of the, you know, the, you know, Australian community has been met as well, um, served. And I sort of, I've started, you sort of, well, we did have a little chat beforehand and you said, I said, oh, you know, the pendulum swung, is it swinging back towards adoption? And which I think is a problem for people who've you know, adopted adults who are not happy with that. So can you kind of paint a picture of, tell me a little bit of what's yeah, the state look, of the you, nation? If you're not up to date here in Australia, I don't blame you because I don't <laughs> even think Australians are up to date in Australia, right. you know? Good. So I would really like to highlight that things have become more simplified in some states, not all states and not all territories. And when we talk about, I mean, you know, me being German, <laughs> I came out here and to be honest, I had, and because I had moved so much in none of my schooling, I had ever learned about the stolen generation and about Australia's history. So I came really naively to Australia and we as Caucasians and non-Aboriginals shouldn't even be looking after these Aboriginal kids, according to the book. And so it should be. But let's just face it, the you know, the majority of kids in care are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander background. So as much as they shouldn't be in our care, unfortunately, we don't have enough um, carers that would fit that category. So in that area, we also are looking for, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander carers. We will never have enough there. Um, And having looked after actually quite a few Aboriginal kids in my care, I have learned a lot. I have already done every course that I could possibly do on that subject. I have really researched it quite a bit. And I I totally feel with the Aboriginal community in so many areas. And, yeah, I mean, gee, I'm German, so I can really not talk about my past um, and our history per se. But what I would like to say is that, you know, a lot of people here when they say, oh, yeah, you know, they should get on with it and times have changed. It has happened up to 1970s and 1980s. I mean, we are literally talking about this generation that all of this happened. So if the Aboriginal community feels very strongly anti-adoption, I totally get it. And yes, if you have an Aboriginal kid in your care, the chances probably are that, you know, adoption will not be granted. Um, and there could be other options for, for example, also guardianship is often a, um, a possibility. And so it depends really on the state. But if it is for other kids in care, then yes, adoption has become more streamlined, especially, I mean, I'm in Sydney, so New South Wales has definitely become more streamlined. There are even, you know, agencies that now do the dual authorization where you can become an authorized foster carer at Mm. the same time be approved as a potential adoptive parent so that you do all the training for both and then you are approved before you start. And then look, if it's the first child, the fifth child, the tenth child, if there is a child that cannot be reunited with birth family, because that is the aim of fostering we always want kids to stay within their culture within their birth family if at all possible so if they find a, a you know a kinship carer or anybody that belongs more to that community then yes that is our aim but if it is not possible then why shouldn't the child if it is a placement that's working then why shouldn't the child stay where it is in that placement without having to be moved again and then, yeah, the adoption should be fast-tracked. Yeah. And that is 
that is the whole point of this. So as much as I used to be upset when people said, oh, you know, go into fostering for adoption. And I thought, no, 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 they're totally separate. I do believe now that instead of, you know, moving kids a million times just because you have not been approved as an adoptive parent, then now to move them to somewhere else, it makes no sense, no sense whatsoever. So if we can do these dual authorizations for the kids that do come up for adoption, great. I, I'm all for it because if that means that the kids can stay where they are and they don't have to move again, then why not? Um, and, and that there is a sense we've got a sort of a comparable system in the UK called foster to adopt where people sort of go into that with their eyes open and there, there are there are risks that as you said, or not well, risks as in you may not it, you've got to you've got to understand what you're getting into and you can't get it you can't sort of manage that experience so that you get what you want out of it it's always got to be about what the child needs and what's best mm -hmm. for the child and um, but in terms of adoption, I can see that it's it remains a highly emotive issue. There's a big picture in Australia with that, you know, the experience of the Aboriginal, and even I think I, I've seen in the news recently the the issue of how that community has been treated, or how their the, how their voice has been elevated or not. I think there was there a national vote recently in terms of yeah, um, mm -hmm. there was a um, referendum, mm -hmm. a referendum, yeah, and um, so still a hugely emotive issue, and and sort of separating adoption broadly from that one specific element. Did, are some people just, is culturally, is adoption just just this hot potato that it's maybe not in other cultures? Like, I don't think it is in ours. I think it's people are generally, yeah, it's a good idea. Mm -hmm. so it, oh, look, I, I think in day-to-day -day conversations, it doesn't really pop up much. And it, it, it wasn't part of the referendum at all. It was really more about saying yes to, to, give them an extra voice in parliament yeah. or no, which um, in my opinion was not very well, even though we, you know, 600 million was spent on this campaign, which, you know, if you would have spent the 600 million for uh, in the Aboriginal community directly, we could have done a, a lot of good. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, I think it, people were really not understanding fully what they were voting for. And there were a lot of people sitting on the fence because they didn't understand really what it was all about. Mm. I mean, that's my personal opinion. Yeah. I think, I think otherwise he, it would have been, yeah, would have been I different. think one of the benefits of being sort of, I suppose you've, you you come with a very different eye that, that's brought this sort of international perspective to the specific issues. And I was going to ask you in terms of um, uh, adoption and fostering in Germany, what you because that's not something that I know, I literally know zero about. So is, do other adoptions, I mean, I presume there's fostering, but is it a comparable system to what Australia you, has? You know, I, I I grew up, okay, I, I must admit, I grew up in a lot of different countries, so not, not in my teenage years in Germany, but I must admit, I had never, ever, at the time when I was in Germany, I had never seen any ads for fostering. Now there have been ads, and I know there is fostering. Yes, they have a fostering system, but they also have orphanages and they also have adoption. So all, but again, you know, there's the age limit, which I think is so, it just needs such an overhaul in all countries, because I think if you put 40 or 45 as an age limit, I mean, nowadays people don't have kids until they are, you know, <laughs> 
easily into mm. their 30s. And by the time they've tried IVF and they actually find out that, oops, it's not happening, uh, you know, boom, they're already 40 and then they're too old to even consider adoption. I mean, I, I just think that the age needs to definitely be changed in most countries because first of all our 40 and 50 nowadays is not what it used to be years ago and people live to you know 70 80 90 so <laughs> there's a big difference uh, in you know our life expectancy and all of that i think yeah I, I think why shouldn't there be somebody in their 50s even able to adopt especially if it's also kids that are maybe already a bit older that want to be adopted you know i mean why couldn't a 50 year old have a 10 year old i mean i see no issue with that whatsoever because that's just also life you know people have kids later and yeah why shouldn't that kid be in a permanent home at that age with somebody you know, that knows for sure that yes i would like a child in my life and it's not a surprise or anything else you know uh Am I right in thinking that there's not not that many adoptions in Germany? Is it is it more sort of care and foster care? Honestly, I, I don't know the figures. I really that's a great question. I would need to you know follow that up. <laughs> some homework some for information. you. Yeah, it's, it's always been in my mind, but I never really researched it. So I just know that the age, because you know from friends, I know that they wanted to adopt or they talked about it when they heard I adopted. Oh yeah, I wanted to, but I was too old, and so I know the age is definitely yeah. still there as a limit. But yeah, I would, wouldn't be able to comment on it too much. <laughs> Well, it's been so interesting to talk to you. And unfortunately, the time difference has caught up with us because I need to go to work and you need to go to bed. Um, so it's been wonderful to speak to you. And you've, you've given us such an insight. And um, I, I, you know, you've got this very specific view that brings this really international perspective, you know, Singapore, Australia, Germany. Um, so thank you so much for your time. And uh, thank you so much for being open and honest uh, about your story. Oh, well, it's my absolute pleasure. And if I can inspire anybody just like you, you know, to actually go down that route and just open up your home and not to overthink it, that would be brilliant. I mean, I, I'm also happy to say that if anybody connects with me on LinkedIn or even on Instagram, right. Instagram, it's Irina Sit, S-Y-D as an abbreviation. So I-R-I-N-A-S-Y-D on Instagram and also on LinkedIn, Irina Castellano. I've written two ebooks on fostering and adoption, and I'm more than happy to share it with anybody who's interested. Excellent. Well, what, I'll make sure that those links are put into the the show notes, and so people can kind of hook into you and um and yeah, get copies of your books and look at them and sort of find out about about your experience and your perspective, um, which I think people would really enjoy listening to and reading. That would be brilliant. Thanks a lot. Much appreciated. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>